1: oftentimes a codependent slash anxiously attached person will find themselves with someone that they think needs to be fixed because that was the childhood orientation is i got to fix the depressed mom or the alcoholic dad or the sibling that's got a disease so i've got to be the good little helper
0: hi my name is mark groves and i'm obsessed with understanding human behavior and why we do what we do In this podcast, I interview the world's most brilliant minds and hearts, where I get to explore alongside you every subject you can imagine relating to our human experience and how we relate. It is my deepest intention that we all learn how to create the life and love that we've always dreamt of. Now, before we get rolling, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And one ask that I have, and an amazing way that you can help support the podcast is by wherever you listen to it, giving it a five-star review and a written review. With all that said, let's dive in. And transform our lives. Hello, and welcome back to the Mark Groves podcast. Today I have ooh, triple, triple returning. Are you triple now? It might be quad. You might even be quad. Quad? Really? You might be the first quadter
1: I uh, definitely better triple. than
0: Jordan. He came back three times. Definitely a triple. Uh, for you listening, it is the infamous Jason Gaddis, coach, therapist, writer, speaker, everything. Welcome, buddy. Appreciate you coming.
1: Thanks, dude. What's up? Great to be here again.
0: Man, I wanted to dive into the journey of self. Like, and when I say that, I think so much of I think there's a saying from Richard uh, Richard Rohr. Richard Rudd, one of those, the guy who was the monk.
1: Richard Rohr, I think.
0: <laughs> Richard Rohr said that when you go on a search to find God, you find yourself. And when you go on a search to find yourself, you find God. They're not separate processes. And I think Um, is similar in relationally or in anything we're in relationship with is that we either are ignited to discover more about ourselves due to that relationship outside of us, or there's some sort of thing going on within us that then invites us to dive within. But either way, we are invited to explore self. And so because you're both a teacher of this, but also a student of this and someone that I respect and wanted to have on to discuss, where do you, how do you even begin? <laughs> like, where do you start when you go into that? Because you guide, I mean, how many people every year?
1: Depending on the training, but could be 50, could be 150, depending on our program.
0: Right. So they're invited to dive deep within. And and when you've done your own journey on yourself, like, how did you even begin that?
1: It took me pain to, to... Finally enter, kind of open that door. And and Richard Rohr, who I'm actually ironically reading his book Falling Upward right now, which I'm loving.
0: Oh, that's ironic.
1: It's a short little that's funny. Totally a short little read, but it's so good. Um, really, it's about the second half of life. And he's like, you know, if you want to stay shut down and kind of closed off to the the grace of God, if you will, um, you can try, but grace is gonna come find you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> to try to get you to change your life, to try to get you to open mind to open a door. And I, I just love when people like finally submit and <laughs> think they, they raise their hand or they raise their white flag and they're like, I want help. Um, cause that's what it was for me. And if I remember your story correctly, that's similar for you, right?
0: Yeah. It was like, it was journeys or layers of, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this. But there was lots of I can'ts. I just didn't recognize the many layers that needed to be, you know, I, I, I don't even, so many coping mechanisms are just the way people live that it's hard to differentiate like what's normal versus, um, I think being absent of addictions and distractions is actually totally abnormal. So you can feel almost like a foreigner or an imposter, or it can feel lonely at first. And I think that's often the fear when you step in to personal work, like you learn, let's say about the dysfunctions of your childhood or your parents. And all of a sudden you're like, how do I have a relationship with my parents anymore now? My mom wasn't present or whatever it is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I, I think so many of us grow up feeling like we have to become a different person to fit in, not only socially, but in our own families. Which I call the strategic self, and as Richard Roy says, it's so much of the journey once we get on the hero's journey of finding out who we are. it's about coming home to who we are and kind of finding that self like you were talking about that true self and i I just think there's almost nothing cooler than that journey.
0: I like what you said about how the book is, which I gotta get that book now, but how you said how grace will come for you no matter what, yeah and how we tend to orient towards change or the need to change is that it doesn't really come with grace, you know, although grace can be a divorce or a job loss or infidelity or an illness. Um, It's grace definitely dressed up in pain and maybe because we don't identify the word grace as being painful, but I think it doesn't always have to be a suffering form of grace, but I think it often becomes a suffering form of grace when we've been denying its invitation. What do you think about that?
1: I mean, and we live in a culture that is so medicated that it's very easy to not see the signs and not find the breadcrumbs and not see the trail, like, and to stay kind of in denial and oblivious, I think. And pain is, seems like, the, is like the one thing that can penetrate,
0: that can know? go through our distractions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, Social media can only work so long till you end up having so much anxiety from using so much social media or like, you know, your addiction takes you to the end of the, like there's not a higher dose, you know, of the addiction before it becomes not just distractive, but destructive. I think about so many people's experiences like, yes, you're right. It's it's a monetizable thing to avoid uh, stepping into your fullest potential which is really kind of fucked up to think about. Right? It's, like, dude, it's sad, right? Right. I can make money from you because you want to avoid being your best self.
1: I'm <laughs> like, oh, fuck it up. Yeah, I can that... keep you asleep and medicated so that you don't have to make the journey.
0: What's the greatest struggle that you see in the individual when they've, let's say, they sign up for something or they just raise the white flag and they're like, all right, like I know... What I'm doing isn't working. I'm ready to kind of maybe sort of explore what I'm doing.
1: I, I mean, I think taking the first step, that is the first step, right? Is if they're kind of sort of maybe on board. Um, but actually finding the right material and guide and path. Like how do I, okay, so I'm in pain and I don't like it and I want to change and I Google stuff, but there is a endless Amount of information now. How do I, how do I find information that's actually going to get me to where I want to go? Which I don't know yet is home, back to me and my essence. It's a lot, man. I'm curious what you think is that first step.
0: I think there's like an overwhelming sense of grief that you experience when, let's say, you've spent your life turning away from your pain or running from it. That even standing still is grief, like. It's almost like a tsunami of of all the things you've been avoiding just hit you in the back. Yeah. But it's a whole other thing to turn around and like look at them. And I think for most of us, you know, when you make the choice to stop, what you're confronted with is that you haven't made the choice to stop for however long it's been until you stop. Right. And so I think then we experience which I think is actually healthy shame because we realize that through discernment and choice, we've actually not been discerning and used choice that we've had. And maybe that's because we've been stuck in victim or we've been stuck in fawn freeze, whatever it is, we're disassociated. But then we become associated. And then you're like, oh, wait, I've forgotten about me. And now I've made all these choices from a place of pain and wounding. And I think that can feel so overwhelming that we either like double down on running or numbing uh, or we, I maybe that's where the language, that's probably where the language dark night of the soul (laughs) comes from is like, there's a, I know Francis Weller talks about how when you've been invited into an initiation, like one of the characteristics of an initiation is that the world you once knew no longer exists. And, the second part is the self that you knew in that world no longer exists. Uh-huh. And those psychological processes, again, as you said, are monetizable. And like, if you don't have good community or good teachers or all of the, of the above, like people who have walked that path or are walking, because I don't think that walking stops, then you don't have someone who can like model nervous system regulation as your world literally feels like it's melting, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean it melting, that's a good way to put it. It feels like your face is melting off. It feels (laughs) so intense. (laughs) And it's a slow burn. Strategic self. Right. Exactly. It's a slow burn and um it can feel overwhelming, super scary. Yeah, you kinda want to go backwards, but as Trunk Rinpoche says, it's like once you step foot on the path, there's like there's no rewind button, you know, once your eyes have been opened,
0: um, <laughs> so true.
1: are you kind of can't shut them again. And this is why that phrase ignorance is bliss is so great because there was a certain, I wasn't, I wouldn't call it bliss, but I was trucking along as an asleep man, asleep young man in my twenties. And it kind of felt okay
0: on some level, right? I'm not right. going to lie. I, it wasn't bad. Yeah. Like beer tasted good. Right. I had a lot of One fun. One night stands weren't too bad. Yeah.
1: Right. One night stands, I had crazy adventures. I did some really stupid shit. I had fun. that I, I broke the law. I did all kinds of shit that I would never do if I was actually connected to myself. And so there, there is a certain adventure to that. And when I sort of started to wake up and get connected to myself and my heart, it was I, I did want to turn around a couple times. Cause it's it was a lot to be with, like you said, all the emotions, the grief, the shame, the the embarrassment about how I behaved for so many years. The list was pretty long.
0: <laughs> Same. Yeah. Uh,
1: I, I'm curious to coming back to the guide thing. How did you how did you find the right guide initially?
0: You know, I like how Martha Beck says that when you Except that you need a teacher, one will appear. Mm-hmm. Um, or, like, you know, the famous saying, when a student's ready, the teacher appears. Yeah. I, I don't know that I knew that I needed the things I got. Like, serendipitously, I, I would ask people, like, uh, when I worked in pharma, we'd often have motivational speakers come in. And I would, if I got the chance, Someone running workshops who I really liked, however, they were making their way through the world and the way they interacted with people. I would ask them, like, what's the best book you've ever read? And the answer, more often than not, was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Oh, uh, such a good one. And so I was like going through my engagement ending that had ended about eight months before. And I remember I bought the book and I was traveling. I was going to a wedding on the East Coast of Canada. And I remember sitting in my hotel room reading. Man's Search for Meaning. And it was the first time I'd ever conceptually thought about having a purpose or the embracing of suffering. And here was this guy who'd been through like the ultimate suffering and was finding grace and finding and meaning. expansion. Right. <laughs> and that was a real big eye-opener for me because it was the first time I ever really, really considered that I was here for a reason. And it was beyond the narrative I was taught to become a man, a provider, a blah, blah, Uh, get a certain type of job, gain significance that way, marry a certain type of person. And um, I think that, you know, when you use that term strategic self, I've never heard that before. I think it was the first time I unconsciously started to experience the separateness between strategic self and actual, like that there was an actual self below Mm -hmm. the strategic self Mm -hmm. So it wasn't explicit. No one pointed it out, but I started to experience the dissonance of those differences. Yeah, which I think historically was just being a twenty-five-year-old or twenty-seven-year-old and like drinking, which that covered it up. I never thought about like any of that, and then I started to consume TED talks, and I remember listening to, uh, which I was like, "Holy shit!" I get fifteen minutes of each of some of the smartest people's minds. Like, wow, and I remember watching Tony Robbins TED talk on like I think it was called why human why we do what we do mhm and just being so captivated by this exploration of psyche and like why do we not become our best selves and and then i just started to consume any teacher that i like then i fell in love with positive psychology consume martin seligman's work and then that leads you to all these other teachers meditation um And I went to Awesomeness Fest. I remember running into teachers there who I was like, oh, wow, like these are, there's some, I did Kundalini. That was a crazy experience. Here's a guy I'd never done yoga in my life, you know, and I experienced like profound accesses to voices and consciousness when I did Kundalini. Um, So yeah, what about you?
1: So cool. I'd love to just have a little camera on you. Back in the
0: day, finding all these cool little rabbit holes. Been balls. like partying <laughs> and then Kundalini. <laughs> and then watching a TED Talk. And... Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, then getting hammered on Saturday. Right. It was layers, layers.
1: Yeah, it's so cool how different people find the path and find their way. Um, I got lucky and went to a graduate school. The fact that I even found Naropa, a Buddhist inspired little university here in Boulder was through a friend uh that I worked with at a wilderness therapy program named Katie who introduced my wife and I actually. And Oh, cool. I just trusted the shit out of Katie. And she was like the only person in my life that challenged me. And she said to me once when I first started kind of waking up, she's like, or right as I was waking up, she's like, You're so full of shit. <laughs> and it just penetrated, it just went right to the core. And I cause I was full of shit. Yeah. And, um, so man, she Alex was, a, she was a real gift. And then I got really fucking lucky, man. I, I had amazing teachers in Europa that introduced me to other amazing teachers. And then I found a meditation teacher that changed my life through a kid in my class in Europa, And just one, like you said, one thing in, led to another and I've just met incredible fucking mentors. And I started just devouring everything they were putting out. Um, mostly in person. I wasn't doing a lot of book reading other than grad school, I was doing like highly experiential like workshops and things like that.
0: Yeah. I got eventually drawn to a positive psych program and then, um, conferences on positive psych and then psychotherapy trainings, you know, all these types of coaching trainings. Yeah, And those were also powerful because they were such reflections of self, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can't go, well, I think at least in a skilled program, you can't learn the skill unless you you become the skill. Unless the intervention gets done on you. I remember the first men's group I ever went to, I like had just experienced a pretty massive loss in my life, but hadn't really confronted it. And I remember I was talking to Connor. I went with Connor Beaton. Yeah. And I was like, I don't even know what I'm going to explore. Like I feel pretty good. Uh (laughs) Fast forward a day later, I'm facing like eight men and I'm, like crying in that crying of like (laughs) the heaving, you know, like the (gasps) heaving sobs. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know I needed what was happening. And I like was, I was so disconnected from the grief, just not knowing how to be with that, that it lived in this compartment that I'd just never been taught how to access it safely, Mm -hmm. you know, but here I was with basically eight, seven men I didn't know. And one I did and felt just like this safety, Mm -hmm. ironically, to To be witnessed, but to also witness myself yeah. in that process. And I remember after seeing all these men and we were doing eye contact work
1: mm-hmm.
0: and sentence stems with each other. And I remember just seeing after they would experience like access to grief like that or rage, like processing emotional experiences in safe containers that there was so much clarity in their eyes mm. Like, I just remember seeing grief and, but openness, like this beautiful openness. And the mm. pre-eyes versus the post-eyes right. were just so different. And I, there's a strange relief that, you know, you go into these programs or experiences, I think the same could be true of conferences or retreats, Yeah, and you're left, you get the medicine you need. You know what I mean? Yeah,
1: Totally. Wow, I'm glad you mentioned the men's group because I and the eyes, because my first class in Europa, the very first day I walk into this room, and this male teacher, Dwayne Molner, is my counseling relationships teacher in a room of whatever, 16 people. And he had these just crisp, clear blue eyes. And he was like 60-something years old. And he just looked at me like he just loved me immediately. I felt so wow. loved when I looked in the guy's eyes. And I, I, it was like the first man I'd met, and I, here I am, twenty nine years old, and the first man I met who, like, felt truly safe, who who actually was interested in my inner life, not what I was a mountain bike thing or a climbing trip or right whatever how many beers I drank last night or who won the game, but I, he just saw right through me and into me, and it was it was incredible to have that. And then I kept meeting men like that, and eventually, I found a men's group. So. And so sim- had a similar thing where I just fucking fell apart you know, and it was very very healing
0: it's amazing it's amazing how much like for men and for women, how much the healing is required within you know yeah. like within the group right like for me, a lot of repair was required with men, most of my experience with men was sports related mm-hmm. and that was actually transformative and powerful, and I learned a lot relationally through that yeah but i also in high school was attacked by a gang that i didn't know oh, and wow. you know got 44 stitches in my head and they broke my hand Shit. i you know that and i hadn't really sat with how much that impacted my trust in um, men and yeah. their capability of violence yeah but also not having access to rage myself because i was afraid of how destructive i'd experienced it yeah. in that yeah and so like there's so many layers i'm curious like for me like there was a lot of Decision points where I could have exited the game. And when I say the game, I mean like the, the self-inquiry game, not, not the other game. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm wondering for you, what was the rudder? Like what was the, the thing that you came back to that kept you centered on the like willingness to keep learning and the willingness to keep uh, exploring deeper parts of yourself? Mm. Because you could have done that work and just become a teacher, right, and sure. not live the teachings.
1: If I had to guess right now, I'd say um, probably the fact that I felt so seen—I was starting to feel like seen and known for the first time in my life—because I had a mask and I had, I, I had lots of friends in my twenties, but felt completely alone, like no one knew me, because I wasn't willing to open up. It would turn out later that I would re- reflect on that and go, "Oh, it was because I was closed off. It wasn't because." No one had the skills. And I certainly hung around people who didn't have the skills, but um, I, feeling seen felt like oxygen to me. Hmm. And so once I started to get a taste of what it was like to feel known by another person, and just I'm talking classmates, teachers, fellow meditators in my meditation community, guys in my men's group. Um, once I started to get a taste of that, and then eventually Ellen, my wife, um, I'll never forget when we had our. I think it was our third date. I completely opened up to her and our fourth date, I think it was, I wanted to run. I was like, it was, cause I, I felt like I opened up and um, I'd never done that with anyone in my life. And I wanted to shut that door and just go away. And I wanted her to go away. And I was super angry at her. I, I was like blaming her in my head. And so I, I think that that was one of the close calls that I, I made and i i just said i remember saying to myself you're not going to run you've done that you've done that Mm. too much for too long no more running and uh like like had to walk myself off the cliff you know because i i did want (laughs) to i wanted to feel known man i wanted to feel seen and understood inside
0: when you did the leap to stay did you explain to her that you wanted to run
1: uh later Short, shortly thereafter because she was like <laughs> yeah she was like what the hell we had this amazing date and you just fucking disappeared i like stopped returning her texts and shit and um or emails or whatever it was back then and um yeah hieroglyphics and she, yeah and she was <laughs> right pictographs uh she was obviously hurt and upset and um yeah but i came back you know that was big for me
0: yeah. You know, I, I joke about, cause man, what was relationships like before texting? Right. You called each other. That was it. And like, it's just so you'd wild.
1: You'd, you'd call each other right. and say, I'll right. meet you at the coffee shop. You know,
0: God forbid,
1: you know, you in know. person. What about you? Was there a time tro- when you were like, what kept you, uh, what was your rudder that kept you in the game?
0: you know you put language to what part of it was which was like witnessing myself and being witnessed or feeling like here i was hanging out with people that were curious about similar things that i my soul had craved but i didn't know i needed mm. and and so like hanging out with other people interested in self inquiry and then self betterment but also um like wanting to improve their relationships and it, that's why i like i remember reflecting much like very early in my journey of wanting to be better at relationships this uh, recognition that not everybody wants better relationships like not everybody wants happiness right you know not everyone I think on a deep level there's a desire for relating better and for more connectedness but not everyone's willing to do that and when you let go of the projection that everyone wants what we want it's so liberating Mm -hmm. and you're not trying to change everyone like I know people who are completely content Going to the game, you know, Monday, Tuesday, watching this, doing that, and not going to their job nine to five. And at least from an external lens, they seem like they're like, I'm good. Yeah. My life's good. I don't want more. Awesome. But I wanted so much more. Yeah. And I also wanted to clean up my shit. And like, for me, it was when I discovered the peace that came with alignment,
1: mm.
0: and when I say alignment, like my choices aligning with my true values yeah. and not the strategic self, but the real self. Yeah. And when I discovered and touched on like what is the life I truly want to create and what really matters to me, then I felt immense pain when I did things that didn't matter to me. Mm where I did things that violated yeah. what mattered to me. Yeah. And so that really, yeah. where the accountability really came was when I was, started to write about it and teach about it. Mm. I was like, I know I can't unless I am. Mm. And that actually, because the purpose work became so important to me, I found something that mattered to me so much that it mattered to me more than my wounding. And like you were saying, you know, which I, I think you tapped into too, which this like witnessing, but then teaching witnessing, like yeah, you become the eyes that welcomed you to class, which yeah. I think is such a powerful, nice, totally, ah, oh, like that's such a gift for someone to see you. And there's a really beautiful TED talk from Amanda Palmer, the musician, where she talks about how she actually before she was a musician, she was one of those like frozen uh, performers like on the street uh-huh. and she was like a statue. Oh, okay. Yeah. And she said that when people came and put money into the box, she would give them a flower and she said that she would see them and and their eyes would say, um, she would say, I see you. And their eyes would say, no one sees me. Mm. And it was this exchange. And I think about that. That's so interesting. Of like part of the work of discovering self is that you become the space that you create within yourself, you then um, allow people to witness in themselves. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I, I wonder if that's why so many people become therapists or coaches that that finally feel seen, right, by their therapist or mm. coach or a mentor. Is there? Right. They want to, like you said, become the eyes and offer that to someone else.
0: I think so. Like when I think about the people who go into care based work. Like, I think one of the parts that I've talked about before is like, it's so easy to monetize your codependency. Like, it's so easy to become a nurse, a dietitian, a doctor. physio, a yeah. doctor, a or coach. A, yeah. yeah. Just put it in, insert whatever. And what happens is, is, if we still have the energetic hooks, there's actually a hook to brokenness, I guess, in some level of the people we work with. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Absolutely. Like I need you to need me because if you don't and now granted, if you're a nurse, there's an attorney or a doctor, there's an overturning of people constantly. But there's like I just think on a deeper level, why we have the skill set we tend to create from being codependent or like a people pleaser, etc., is that this the skill set becomes a superpower because you needed it to survive. Yeah. But then it becomes a job because it's now being sourced to survive. But then when it's energetically exchanged from that, it's not clean. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an evolution that needs to occur. And I don't mean any of this hierarchically. I just mean like from a self-perception, why we go into the work, I think needs to shift why we stay in the work, yeah. if that makes sense.
1: Well, you're bringing up a good point. Uh, I think it's the shadow of the healing arts, honestly, is I need people to stay broken and so they can get paid, right? Right. Um, and I, it's a tricky one because I always say, you know, if you're, when I train our coaches, I'm always saying, look, you know, you're doing a good job if your clients fire you. And by firing you, it means they got to where they wanted to go and they, they reached Mm -hmm. the goal or they became a better listener or they finally ended that toxic relationship or whatever they did. And you high five them and they should leave. Like you don't actually want them to stay because I think there is a certain, shadowy codependency thing there if it's like okay what's the next problem we want to work on and pretty soon someone's in therapy for 15 years you know
0: As you know, I eliminated the use of caffeine, and now I've reintroduced it just a little bit in me choosing how it participates in my life, which I like being in control of my relationship with any substance that stimulates me and my mind. And add to that that I really wanted to find something that allowed my brain to perform at its best possible level. I'm in conversations all the time. I'm recording videos. I'm doing podcasts. And so I need to be at the highest performance I can possibly be. So I've been exploring Things like nootropics and adaptogens. I absolutely love this company, Cured Nutrition. I love its origin story. It's fully aligned with my values and the integrity to which I want to live by. The product that I love is called Rise, and it's a nootropic that's formulated by their in house clinical herbalist. And it contains a blend of lion's mane and cordyceps mushrooms, rhodiola, ginseng, and a broad spectrum CBD. I love this product. It has allowed me to have greater mental clarity and performance. There's no caffeine in it. So in that time of that midday coffee, I don't have to take it. You get no jitters, you get no crash, and you're getting those functional mushrooms, the adaptogens and the cannabinoids, and it leaves your brain on fire and your to-do list just gets crushed. So this company... As I mentioned, I love, and they are extending an exclusive offer to you, my listeners. You can go grab Rise and any of their other products for 20% off. Just go to www.curednutrition.com slash create the love, and you use the code create the love at checkout. Once again, that's C-U-R-E-D nutrition.com slash create the love, and use the code create the love at checkout to save 20%. Remember, that product is called Rise, and it is incredible. Yeah, I remember working with, uh, I had this amazing boss when I was a rep, when I first started. And he said to me, uh, in one of the first times we met, he said, my whole job is to make you my boss. And I remember thinking like, (laughs) like, what what a cool, yeah, of course, right? Because you're like, wait, what? (laughs) But his, like the way he managed me was from this place like, I'm going to give you everything Mm -hmm. that I can give you because I want you to actually grow beyond me.
1: Yeah,
0: and. He was such a model of this, like, and he meant it. Like it was such an authentic, you know, when we we actually reflect back on like mentors that gift you things, he gifted me so many things. And I I now just in hindsight of answering that question, I remember going through my breakup uh, of my engagement in my late 20s. And I like partied for two or three months after I went through that breakup. Uh And I remember sitting with him having coffee in the morning once and he just looked at me and he's like, are you done? And I was like, what? He's like, Are you done being twenty-two? And I was like, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, got it out of your system? And I'm like, Yeah. And he's like, All right, it's time to it's time to move forward. And I was like, Oh wow. Like you know, like right. like you were talking about your friend Katie and I wanted to inquire a bit more about that too. Is like For me, a lot of my powerful shifts came at the hands of people who told me hard truths. Mm -hmm. And I think we can have friends who do that for us, although there can be, you know, dynamics that can impact if we're not, if we don't see our relationships as places of feedback. But then there's also why we hire coaches or therapists, too, is because I think unconsciously, at least for sure, we seek hard truths. And when we're actually, consciously seeking hard truths that's a totally different orientation what do you think
1: yeah i i think you're sort of I'm, a bunch of memories are coming in but um as you say that and i'm just kind of feeling into what a disservice it is when i don't offer a hard truth to someone and i hold back for whatever reason because i i like to think if you care if you truly care about someone caring is loving someone. And it's, to me, I see love as challenge and support you. You're willing to challenge them and support them. Love Mm. is not just one-sided support where I just support you and your kind of neurotic patterns and, Hey, I'm just here for you if you need anything. And it's, it's like being willing to say, no, man, you're drinking too much or you're fucking, Mm. you're fucking up your relationship. And I think that's on you to a friend, for example. Um, I think that's not, not everyone, look, not everyone wants to hear it and not everyone can maybe handle it or digest it but i think it's absolutely okay to to bring that level of honesty um because i think if if it's coming from service and i want to help you versus and and i care about you versus i'm trying to like hurt you or manipulate you or one-up you or something that's obviously different
0: yeah i remember having a friend we were dating best friends and he called me and was like hey I need to tell you something. And the reason I'm telling you is because if I was, if I was in your circumstances, I'd want you to tell me.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And he told me that my girlfriend at the time was cheating on me. Oh. Yeah. And, you know, still one of my closest friends in my life because what was modeled so early was like, I'm here to tell you the truth. And if it hurts your feelings, I don't care because it like liberates yeah. you. It, and that was a model of of friendship I had experienced but not so with such a big thing cuz he was putting at cost his relationship cuz he was telling, you know, something that his girlfriend had told him in confidence, yeah. etc. And I think now what you're saying about the willingness to tell the truth, I think often like right now culturally I think in a lot of ways we sacrifice truth for feelings. Yeah. And We're oscillating around truth because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. But the problem is, is that if you live in a relationship that dances around feelings, you'll never feel witnessed, seen, or safe. And you end up colluding with them. And often I think you end up resenting the other because you blame them for not being able to hold the truth you're not telling them when you're the one holding it.
1: Spot on. I like to say we're sacrificing our truth for connection which is, the, I guess, mm. the same thing as feelings. Um, I don't want to lose relationship. I don't want to create a bigger divide here. I don't want to upset you even more and have us uh, get even farther apart. So I'm going to withhold this. But meanwhile, like you said, I'm going to resent you. Yeah, and then I'm going to Well, and blame then you. I stay trapped. <laughs> so.
0: Right, right. And then I blame you, which is great, because yeah. then it's your fault I'm not bringing this forward. That's right. Which, when I look at the pathology of that, I guess I probably think there's a template in the, childhood where there was like the inability or lack of safety what do you think some of the pathologies would be
1: yeah i'm with you that uh you know we get habituated from a young age to um, conform to what the family needs us to be and how they need us to be and who they need us to be and so we it's required usually price of admission being in a family is to stuff our truth and um do what's needed of us. And that could be for some of us it's to be invisible. For some of us, it's to be big and funny and loud. And for some of us it's to be um a good boy or a nice girl or whatever the thing is. And then that turns into the strategy slash personality that the person doesn't even know that there's an alternative, like you and I. We didn't know that there was an alternative human, beautiful human down below the mask, you know. But I, I think it's most of the time it's um it's uh Starts in childhood for sure.
0: What do you think about dealing with? Because, you know, I think how we orient to someone's change or inability to change is a big part of Mm relating, right? Like, especially if we marry someone when we're like 18 or 20, or we've been with someone. I met someone the other day who had been with their partner since they were like 16 or 15 and they were in their 50s. And I'm like, holy shit, like to know really no other romantic relationship is so. Crazy in my mind, yeah. um But it's so commonplace for so much of our previous generations. Yeah. So, like, when we're in a relationship with someone who actually is toxic, how do you teach people to orient to that? Like, I'm curious what what are the oh man. And I get there's a lot of complexity to this mm-hmm. because how do you begin to unlayer? Because if you're talking about things like narcissism or other personality issues, like how do you even like, how do you begin?
1: Totally, I'd love to know your thoughts too. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I think you lead. I want you to start. Okay. On this. I think it's, I think it's useful to come from the codependency frame that we were talking about earlier. That oftentimes a codependent slash anxiously attached person will find themselves with someone that they think needs to be fixed or changed in some way because that was the childhood orientation. Is I got to fix the depressed mom or the alcoholic dad or? Uh, The the sibling that's got a disease, so I've got to be the good little helper. So naturally, that's the template for this is what a fair relationship is. I help you, but you don't help me. And those people are the most vulnerable to finding themselves with toxic people um, and people that have personality disorders and that really are stuck psychologically and developmentally. And, And nowadays, with personal growth tools being so accessible, people that are pretty sick can use personal growth tools to make it look like they're doing the work. Um, but really it just comes back to, do you feel safe, seen, soothed, supported and challenged by your partner on a consistent basis? Do they feel that? Is it mutual? Does it feel fair? And if you can't answer yes to that question, you know, it's a problem and it's, you're settling for scraps or you're settling for a shitty relationship and you're going to probably stay because, um, you think the way out or the way to the next summit or plateau of the relationship is to alter them in some way, shape, or form. And it's this outside in approach, right? Instead of an inside out approach. Um, But I think those are the most vulnerable folks um, and their work as you teach. And as we've talked about is to obviously set boundaries and value themselves more and so on.
0: When you talk about personality disorders, what are you talking about? For people I'm see. mostly
1: talking about two the most common ones that get talked about borderline personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder being that there's two types and usually the the exhibitionist narcissist won't come to therapy or treatment or coaching but um unless it's to they'll they'll get uh they'll hire a coach to make more money but they won't hire a coach to look within but the mm-hmm. covert narcissist will come to treatment and there're and you know i've learned and studied enough now to know that people who have been diagnosed or informally, formally, whatever, um, with either one of those covert narcissism or borderline personality disorder can actually change with the right treatment and the right guidance and good, really, really effective skills from the therapist usually or or a couple's therapist, but the work is slow. It's arduous. um, It's often confrontational um, and border folks with borderline are way more open to being challenged than a covert narcissist. So there's different things that we can, you know, without getting off the track here. um, But those are the common ones.
0: How do you differentiate borderline from covert narcissism?
1: The trait they have both in common is that there's a, they lack a self, a coherent self. And that usually is developed between zero and three, eight years of age. And it's developed in relationship to often the mother um, because the mother is often doing the primary caregiving uh, in that, those early years. And um, the covert narcissist got kind of a mixed message of you're special and kind of fuck you. Um, mm. And the borderline got the message that uh, if I'm, I, I am not separate from mother, I am the same. And whatever I do will impact her well-being So I have to Mm. basically go along with everything that she's about. And I have to basically become her. We're we're sort of one fused, you know, dyad here. And um, most mothers of borderline children are pretty sick themselves. And they're usually have borderline and they're just repeating this generational sort of cycle of handing this pattern Mm -hmm. down uh, and then these kids, you know, grow up per- very disempowered and extremely um, difficult to be in relationship with. That's their hardest challenge. They can look very high functioning in business, very high functioning out in the world, but get them into an intimate relationship, and it's it's uh, extremely hard for them because they, the thing they have to do that 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 they have to face is their aban- what uh, Masterson calls the abandonment depression. They have to. Um, understand that there was a tremendous loss in those first three years, face that, feel all the feelings associated with that, and basically make the developmental steps that they didn't make to become an empowered person. But that means that comes at the risk of losing a relationship with mother, so they don't want to do it. And then they project mother onto every therapist that they work with, so then their game becomes, I'll reject you before you reject me. And I'm not going to get empowered over here, because then you'll go away.
0: Interesting. It's a trap. So the template for relationship, that's especially intimate relationship, yeah, is if I step fully into my power, unconsciously there's a deep fear that you'll leave me. Yes. So instead, what I'll do is, uh, I'll reject you first. I'll attack you first. Yeah. That's fascinating, and I'm sure there's lots of complexity to all that. I'm I'm curious when you think because when I look at let's say someone in relationship who is open to going to therapy, the covert narcissism who's like open to it, but then is weaponizing spiritual language, personal growth language, um, therapeutic language is that there's this really interesting. And I think of like, you were saying someone who's anxiously attached slash codependent, all the different language we use to identify those patterns of behavior. There's this hook that's in there that, that, Believes in the best of people and falls in love with potential and also thinks it's their responsibility to usher everyone to their potential. Yeah. You got it. (laughs) Meanwhile, like life force is being siphoned from them. Yeah. And this other person's deep insecurity is actually unconsciously, because I don't think it's conscious generally, unless they're a psychopath or a sociopath. That's right. But it's like unconsciously, there's this absolute need to control and weaponize these skills. In order to maintain attachment, yeah, like and and the the self, as you said, there is no self, which I think is um, interesting in the sense that, that do you think that's why there seems to be almost zero capacity for shame in the covert narci- or the narcissist in general?
1: yeah, I, I think the shame is there. But it's, mm, well, yes, in, the, in yeah. the exhibitionist narcissist, there's not much shame because the parent reinforced how great they are. They they just did a lot of grandizing. Like, you're the best, you're so special, you're amazing, you can never do anything wrong. And they, so the child genuinely believes I'm the best, I can do no wrong, etc. But the covert person is like, has deep fucking shame. And this, this huge wall around that shame to defend against it because to, again, their journey is they have to, self-actualize and um, take responsibility for feeling the shame and then realizing how broken and fractured they feel as a self inside. And they Mm -hmm. don't want to do that uh, because, again, of the consequences, because if they get empowered in here, other people are going to go away. It's going to go really bad. They're going to get hurt. It's going to be traumatizing. So I will stay extremely defended. And I'll more or less use all these tools to make you wrong and to gaslight you and to make you crazy, um, essentially. So I don't have to do anything. And it's, it's so it's, it is crazy making to be in a relationship with these people, which you would think that would be enough fucking fuel for someone to get out. But it's very hard.
0: Cause as you know, these things are like lock and key, right? It's, it's hard to right. leave these kind of relationships it looks right into the wound of I'm broken yeah, of the partner. totally Right. So it's like the exploitation of that wound in order to avoid, as you were saying, navigate the shame of self. Yeah. Oh, and it's almost like you're just rubbing the wound in order, just like, don't make me look at me, you look at you. Yeah. Even my shit is your shit.
1: Which is why covert narcissists can be extremely aggressive, um, violent, just mean, super mean-spirited. You, you touch the poke the bear in the wrong way, man, and they're going to get pretty hostile
0: yeah the defenses are uh, strong, yeah when you think about the work that you do and what you've witnessed in terms of working with couples or individuals who are relating in in relationship with people because I, I don't think generally someone who is as we're talking about is coming to a therapist to work on themselves yeah but what's your experience when you're working with uh, someone who's in relationship with someone like that, how they can begin or continue the journey of exiting.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, I want to know what you say here. And and the short of it is to keep it, you know, concise is value yourself and start setting some pretty ruthless boundaries and start expecting more. And you've settled for your childhood recapitulation here. You don't need to do that. Here, painting them a picture of what's actually possible and telling, reminding them that they deserve that and they can have that. And often they think, no, I can't have that. I don't deserve it. And so you have to work on that. Like, okay, I deserve, I'm worthy. I'm a good person. Um, I can be in relationships that feel mutual, fair, just, uh, respectful. And um, I can have that be my North Star. And my work right now is to, uh, because they often can't leave a relationship until they begin to do this work. Um, Mm -hmm. And as you've probably seen is, you can't. It, it's very simplistic to say, "Well, just fucking leave the relationship." It's so easy, like, duh. Right? It's not fair, but they can't. And so it's like, cool. You need to then commit to making the journey. And if the stakes are high, like financial dependence,
0: there's more work to do because it's harder. Every. I mean, I agree with everything you're saying. I think like when you're making that massive of a developmental leap, like you're maturing in a way, like, you know, as you were saying, you're you're going through these developmental processes in a relationship as an adult, but really you're acting not as an adult in those relationships. And so to actually become an adult, you know, I think is part of that self-reflection of, as you said, being able to say, like, do I you said value yourself, right? And part of valuing yourself is Actually, I'd say the whole part of valuing yourself is having behaviors that match the idea that you value yourself and boundaries. There's no greater expression of self-value than a boundary And, and boundaries around standards. And I think when we were modeled lower standards in order, and just you're born into a relationship with someone, probably your mother and your father, that and maybe one or the other that required you to just, you just didn't know higher standards could exist. You didn't know right. like respect, safety. And you had no choice. Yeah. Right. So to create a different world and a different possibility, I think can feel overwhelming because you've yeah. been taught to just like take breadcrumbs. And then when you're like, holy shit, there are loaves out there <laughs> and Roaves. I can have them.
1: There's a right. bakery.
0: Like, <laughs> right. I'm the fucking baker. Yeah. And like, when I consider how to make that giant of a leap, I really think it requires being in the company of one or many people who yeah. that is the way they live. Mm. Like they're already doing it. Nice. And so, you know, kind of like what you said about your teacher, I think that's true of like, when you have a teacher who looks at you in a way that recognizes your value, you start to feel value. Yeah. And, and, and then you start to touch something, which I think mm. comes back to what you said about Richard Rohr. You get to touch this sort of grace that that is like you're tapping into a love that's so deep that's innate, yeah. That comes with, I think, a lot of grief because you haven't touched it or you haven't been you haven't sat with it. Mm-hmm. And you said like the confrontation of shame that's untouched, a grief that's untouched, self that's not actualized. And so I don't think there's any journey to expansion without a really beautiful grief work, yeah. You know, the life unlived, the love unloved, the mm. connection unconnected. And I think it's a must that you are resourced in community. And I think that's why, like, work in men's group, women's groups, taking trainings, all those types of things, conferences, retreats, you end up in this collective nervous system where everyone's like, you're badass, let's fuck the world. Not fuck the world up in a bad way, but in a good way. Yeah. Um, you know, disrupt systems. And Yeah.
1: Yeah, I love that. I just want to underscore the grief piece and then also the don't go it alone, like surround yourself with people who are showing you what a relationship is, what's possible, what it can actually look like. And you can develop in these trainings in different places. I've seen this in our trainings as people feel closer to um, a person in the training because they're getting, it's mutual and it's reciprocal than they do with their own spouse of 25 years. I mean if that's not enough evidence like of what's possible and and that's highly experiential right experiential evidence that wow I can develop friendships where it goes both ways this is so cool mm.
0: like wow mm. can you speak more to because I know you you launch your training I believe once a year right yep once a year can you speak more to like what is entailed with it because for you listening I love Jason. I love his wife. I love what you guys, I love what you guys created with the relationship school. And I mean, just like the, there's no other program that I recommend to you because when someone's like, I want a complete experience, I want to do this type of work. I'm like, this is where to go. Mm. And I mean that wholeheartedly. Mm, So can you speak to people about if they're interested in diving deeper to self, maybe leading people relationally, um, what that looks like and what sort of work they can look forward to within your program.
1: Yeah, totally. Thanks, Mark. So, yeah, we Mark and I are both, you know, helpers, um if I can speak for you there. You know, turn you turn into a coach, right? And um a helper of many, many people, me too. And it's all of us who've been hurt in relationship and find ourselves kind of wanting to be the the person that everybody opens up to at a cocktail party or on a plane. Um, we're the friend in the friend group that people just naturally maybe feel safe with you, that person listener are highly qualified to be some kind of nurse, doctor, um, coach therapist person. So we have a training for you, um, called relationship coach training, RCT. Uh, Mark has supported us in the past and there's been, you've had some of your students of just amazing, um, uh, or people just amazing people. We've gone through our training and it's nine months long. It's a very deep dive. I think it's one of the harder <laughs> personal development courses on the planet because it, it's so asks you and invites you to look at yourself squarely in the eye in the heart. And, um, as we were talking about before we hit record, how essential it is to do the work yourself. If you're going to help other people, um, I always say to people, don't go to a therapist or a coach who's not Number one, working on themselves and regularly, and number two, not getting supervised by someone more senior or experienced than them. Um, so our tr- our training provides that, and we're just in the business of trying to make fit, equipped guides for people who are struggling specifically with relationship with self or relationship with others. That doesn't have to be intimate partnerships. It can be work relationships or friendships or family relationships. And so the course is a deep dive into um, understanding yourself and what you need to work on uh, in terms of boundaries and owning your needs and working through conflict in your own life. So you're getting a a workshop on your own development during the course while simultaneously you're working with a client, helping them, a real actual client that we give you, a real person. Uh, You're working with your peers And you're learning how to effectively coach people because a lot of codependent people or helpers have this habit of rescuing, fixing, advice giving, problem solving, which is not great coaching um, if you want to truly be an exceptional coach. So, yeah, we give you the skills and we give you the training to, uh, and it's a certification, so you get a certification at the end. Uh, We're working on our uh, accreditation with the International Coaching Federation. That's still in process, so hopefully one day we'll have that. Um, I've taught this course eleven times, uh, wow, over many years, so I've gotten pretty solid at this, and so you're in good hands, and our community's awesome and uh, you know if you like what Mark's Land down here in terms of the stuff he teaches in the podcast, it might be a good crossover for you to do a little cross training.
0: Yeah, beautiful. Where can people find more of that, and where can they find more of you?
1: Yeah. So, uh, relationshipschool.com forward slash RCT is the coaching training. Uh, I hang out on Instagram a fair amount at Jason Gaddis. That's J-A-Y-S-O-N-G-A-D-D-I-S. In the application process, you want to make sure to mention uh, Mark Groves because you folks, um, I can't remember the deal we, we did for your listeners last time, but I think they
0: save a thousand bucks.
1: I think look, thanks. Right? I think you save a thousand bucks if you come through Mark and you join our training. Um, so, which is a pretty substantial um, discount, and we're happy that's to, right, people. A
0: thousand dollars,
1: and we interview everybody that comes through. So you don't have to commit to anything. You can just do an interview and see if it's the right fit for you in the right time in your life.
0: Perfect, Jason. Always a pleasure, man. Appreciate It'd, you. Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, I could go on for hours. I love hanging out with you and chatting and jamming and. um Appreciate you, Mark, and congrats again on being a dad and all the goodness that comes from family and fatherhood. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it.